for our text for this morning's message. I want to first turn into the New Testament where we have the mention of Gideon in Hebrews chapter 11, but I want to highlight specifically from the three verses that we read there, the portion that reflects more specifically to the life and ministry of Gideon as a judge. And that is found in uh, verse 34, the last portion, where we have, of course, the first part that says, what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon. And then that portion that says, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign enemies. And then just to have before us the specific verse in which Gideon receives his call from the Lord in verse 14, chapter 6. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I would guess that the majority of those of us who are here have been born and raised in a Christian environment, perhaps for generations. You come from a Christian family, you attend and are members of a Christian church. You've been taught from childhood, through Sunday school, through catechism instruction, around the devotions at your family table. You have been taught the ways of the Lord. But as we look at the society around us, we see that things are different, don't we? The world in which we live does not always reflect. In fact, it very seldom reflects what we know is God's call to us as Christians. Canada considers itself to be a Christian nation. I would put that under very big quotation marks. Because you only need to look around you at what's happening here in Canada to see that there has been and continues to be a major drift away from God and the teachings that he gives to us in his word. That's the reality of the situation in which we live. Now I want you to imagine that this is pushed now even further. In order for us to understand the context of the time of Gideon, I want you to imagine that this is pushed now even further along. And as a part of that, I want you to imagine that now murder, once considered a punishable crime, people are looking the other way and not even paying much attention to murder. Aren't we living that already with the abundance of abortions that are being committed in our country today. And I want you to imagine, for instance, that even what stealing was once considered stealing and the embarrassment and the shame and the punishment that would follow upon that with the, by law, that now people are becoming more and more clever about their stealing. They still steal, but they're not caught. And if they are caught, nothing really is done about it. It's a way of life and it is becoming more and more a way of life. I want you to imagine that churches once filled to the brim are slowly but surely becoming 
uh, emptier and emptier. Less people are attending church. Perhaps we might say that's not so hard to imagine either because it is happening in our society today. But in the midst of that, I want you to think about yourself looking at what is going on, wanting to be faithful to God, our covenant Father, and asking ourselves this question. What can I do about what is happening in Canada? What can I do about what's happening in my neighborhood? What can I do about what's happening in our world today? Is there something I can do who am I? Really? With the very little training that I have, and the very little experience that I have. This is the situation that Gideon is in. If you follow along in your bulletin outline for the message, I'll be talking about four different items. First of all, I want to look with you at Israel's desperate condition. Then I want to look at the call of Gideon in the midst of that desperate condition. Then I want to look together with you at God's battle equipment, how he equips us for that, and then the battle victory that comes at the conclusion of that. The situation that I have just described is only a glimpse of a picture of the desperate situation that Gideon was living in at the time that we come to this passage of Scripture. Gideon is considered to be one of the greatest of the judges. There is many judges, but there's more written about Gideon than there is about any of the other judges. Gideon sets the stage, if you will, or a pattern, if you will, for what the other judges have also been involved in. Gideon lived in a very idolatrous environment. If you look at the verses leading up to the passage that we read, the first 10 verses, you will get a glimpse of that idolatrous environment in which Gideon was living in amongst the people of God at that time. By the time of Gideon, we read here in the first 10 verses, the people were worshiping not God, but Baal. They were in a situation where they were living among those who were pagan, but God's intention was for them to have an impact on the pagan in order to bring them also to a living relationship, a covenant relationship with him. However, rather than that, the people of Israel were beginning to accommodate themselves to the culture in which they were living. Sound familiar? That's what's happening today in our society and even amongst churches today as well. They decided to stop fighting against the forces of evil. Not only had they decided to stop fighting against them, they had decided to join forces with them, just sort of play along and be as the rest of them. After all, we want to fit in, said those at Gideon's time, the people of Israel. What we read there, then, that there are Amalekites and Midianites in these first verses. Who are they? They were... They were a traveling group. The Amalekites and the Midianites did not have property. They did not have an area, land, or a country. They traveled from place to place, and when they traveled, they would simply 
take up the corn or whatever was being sowed in the field, whatever harvest it was, they would just simply take it over. If they wanted to have a meal, they would simply take down one of the beef or one of the sheep and have themselves a meal, helping themselves to wherever they were going, plundering and looting their way along as they traveled from place to place. And Israel was facing this very situation. They were, as a matter of fact, we read in verse 5, like locusts. They were all over the place, swarming over God's people at that time. And so we read in verse 2 that the people of Israel were forced out of their villages and, their, and where they were living and they were forced to go into the mountains in order to escape these plundering nomadic groups, the nomads, Amalekites, and the Midianites. And this went on, verse 1, for seven years. It's a difficult situation that they are dealing with. And desperation, we read in verse 6, then God's people come to their senses and they recognize that they need to turn to the Lord. And we read there, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. And then in verses 7 through 10, God sends a prophet to them to explain to them that this is a part of God's punishment to them because they had turned away from the Lord and towards the idols and the Baal worshipers of that time. And so God was directing a form of punishment here on his people. Isn't it true that when we look at our own times, that we see that from generation to generation, a tendency is there to move away from the teachings of the scriptures and to do more and more our own thing? Most of us, come out of a European background, Dutch particularly. And in Europe, where the Reformation began, there was a lot of passion for the Word of God back in the time of the, of the 1600s and forward from that. Go to Europe today, go back to Holland today and ask yourself, is the same thing being seen there? Or has, over the generations, things been drifting away from God's word and the teachings that he gives to us in his confessions. We see that tendency. And the same thing can easily happen in our own circles too. It was happening in Gideon's time. And it happens today. Today we look around in Canada, we see that abortion, as I mentioned already, is, is generally accepted by the population. It has been legalized by our government. We see a situation of homosexuality that becomes more and more commonplace and we are told to understand and to accept. And not only that, we are expected to embrace it in our culture. We look at what's happening at our different levels of government today and we see all kinds of scenarios of scandals going on, a spending scandal at, at the federal level amongst senators mismanagement of funding and poor decision-making with the gas plants in Ontario and Mississauga. And these things are not called sin, they're, they're called simply a political necessity or an unfortunate circumstance. Certain mayors, I won't mention names, shall I, are involved in all kinds of scandals and people look at it and they laugh and chuckle about it and say, well, that's his private life. It's called, no longer is it called sin, it's just one of those things, I'm doing what I can, or it's political necessity. But this is the sin 
that our society is accommodating itself to, similar to what Gideon was facing. Out of this context, Gideon receives his call. And in verses 11 to 24, we read about the call of Gideon. And it is out of this context, people of God, that you and I are called to serve faithfully to our Lord. In the context of idolatry that was going on at that time, in the context of a move away from God's word and his teaching in our lives, his covenant word to us, we now have a recognition of the fact that God maintains for himself a faithful remnant. And among that faithful remnant is Gideon. And God calls Gideon to be used by him. Is there today in Canada a faithful remnant? I trust that you as a congregation see yourselves as being a part of whom God is calling to be that faithful remnant as you are receiving the teaching from the scriptures from this pulpit Sunday after Sunday, as you're being raised in the ways of the Lord in your own homes, as you're being raised in the teachings in the Christian schools, I trust that you too see yourselves as being a part of that faithful remnant. And in that way, we need to identify with Gideon. Israel was living as sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering. Oh, to be sure, they weren't wandering no longer physically in the wilderness. They were in their own land, their own country. They had been given the promised land, but they were wandering spiritually. And it is to that situation that God shows his grace towards his people. Though we, as God's people, may be unfaithful and indeed are unfaithful to God, God always remains faithful to his covenant promises. He has promised that through this people Israel would come the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's the context in which we must see this account about Gideon. Gideon is called by God to deliver his people. But the greater deliverance, this deliverance of Gideon points to a greater deliverance of Jesus Christ. We must see this passage of scripture in the backdrop of the promise that God has given already from Genesis 3 verse 15 that Jesus Christ was to come and that it is through Jesus Christ that we have deliverance from our sins. We just walked our way through a time of confession and repentance and forgiveness that God grants to us. That's what this is all about. Looking at Jesus Christ, but all of this taking place through Gideon. It's as though God says to Gideon, Gideon, I want you to deliver my people as a picture of what Jesus Christ was to do as time was to move along. Gideon's call comes in three stages. First of all, his call, and we're looking at verses 12 and forward here. The foundation or the setting up, if you will, of that call comes to us in verse 12. There's actually a sermon built right in this, but I will limit it just to the common comments about it. 
When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. At the foundation, at the onset, at the setting up of this call that God gives to Gideon, God says to Gideon, The Lord is with you. You are not alone. Gideon responds in a way that perhaps we might easily respond in verse 13. But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. Gideon is reflecting once again on these nomads, the Midianites and the Amalekites that have come. And he's saying to the Lord, well, if you are with us, why are we going through what we are going through? We feel abandoned. Do you ever go through times when you feel as though you are just not connecting with God? Times when we feel as though we have been abandoned by God because of many number of things that may be going on in our lives? God says to us is that if you feel that there is a distance between me and you, I can guarantee you, says God, that it is not me who has moved. It is you who has moved away from me. And you are called back into a relationship with me. And Gideon is being taught this lesson here now to call his people, the Israelites amongst whom he lived, back to God so that they would no longer need to feel that abandonment. There was only one human being in the entire world that was ever fully, yes, fully abandoned by God. And that is Jesus Christ when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the experience of hell that you and I deserve, that abandonment from God that you and I deserve. But he went through it in our place so that we wouldn't have to go through that complete abandonment experience by the grace of God. Gideon moves on. The Lord then turned to him and said, as a, as a part of that in verse 13 we have, and then the Lord turns to him and says, go in the strength that you have, here's our text, and save Israel out of Midian's hand. And if it's not clear enough, he specifically says then, am I not sending you? Gideon, let me spell it out for you. You are a part of the faithful remnant. Things are not going well in Israel. I'm sending you. And God is sending that same message to all of the Gideons today. And may I say, Gideonas. Those of us who have professed our faith in Christ, who have been called by God, are called upon to be faithful to him and to do what needs to be done and to say, here I am. Use me. Interesting how Gideon responds in verse 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. The first thing that Gideon says, I don't have it. You're calling for Gideon? Is there another Gideon around here somewhere? You must be talking about somebody else. Surely you can't be talking about me, says Gideon. Gideon says, 
I don't know if you understand this, but he says, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. He is from the weakest of the tribes, first of all, he says. Manasseh is the tribe that is least written about in the Old Testament. It's, in fact, a divided tribe. When the, the, the tribes were divided amongst, uh, amongst the people, uh, the, when Canaan was divided amongst the people, Manasseh was divided between the, on both sides of the Jordan River. It's a split tribe, the weakest of the tribes. Not only that, Gideon says, I'm the weakest in the clan. Our, my family, my family group is the least recognized in the tribe of Manasseh. And furthermore, Lord, I, Gideon, am the least known in my family. I get picked on. People laugh at me. I'm no good. I don't know how to do. And, and people kind of snicker about me. And why are you then calling me? Basically, God says it's precisely, that's precisely the reason why I am calling you. Because you don't have it in yourself. Go in the Lord's strength. That's what he said, is it not? In the first part of, in the last part of verse 12, the Lord is with you. I wonder if sometimes we respond the same way. Oh, there's a lot of terrible things happening in our world today. But, hey, I'm just a carpenter. I'm just a farmer. I'm just a businessman. I'm, I'm just a teenager going through school. I'm just a child of five or six years old. I don't have what it takes. Don't talk to me. Go talk to the pastor or one of the elders or, or talk to one of those who are, who are gifted and talented in, in what they do and have them do the work that you're calling us to do to change this nation and to change the world. And God says, no, I'm calling you with all of your warts, with all of your limitations, with all of the weaknesses that you have because it is not you. The Lord is with you. And then Gideon responds, and the Lord responds in verse 16. And the Lord then says to him, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites together. Not you, but I. We'll see how that develops later on when we talk about the victory that goes on. And then Gideon replies, if now I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. And then he asks for the sign of the stone. He wants to put the meat on the stone. And God cooks that meat with the broth that is there as a part of that to demonstrate that it is indeed God who is calling Gideon to this. What about our call? Is this just a nice account of something that's happening in the Old Testament, and you say, well, that's great for Gideon. Today, God is not looking for multi-talented and gifted people, first of all. God is looking for two characteristics which he found in Gideon. Number one, are you faithful? Are you committed to following Jesus Christ faithfully in your life. Oh, you will make your errors. But do you recognize those errors? And do you desire to follow him more and more every day of your life to be with a desire to be more and more like Christ? Is that a picture of you? Second, not only are you faithful, but are you available? Are you willing? 
Are you able to say, as Gideon then finally does say, here I am, but how, where, when? Let me know. God, this is your battle. Use me, however you can, with all of my limitations. Use me. God is looking for two characteristics today, people of God, faithfulness and availability. And when we have those characteristics, God will move and shake this congregation. And God will move and shake Canada and the world because that's precisely what God is looking for. He's not looking for what he sees on the outside, the external, whether we are strapping and strong and able and talented and gifted. He is looking on the heart. Do we have a right relationship with God? Are we faithful? And are we available and willing to go? God has chosen us today to extend and expand his kingdom in the same way that Gideon was called at that time. Remember that Gideon is a representation and a symbol of the presence of Jesus Christ himself to his people at that time, as you and I today are a symbol and a representation of Jesus Christ in our times today. Did Gideon go out into this battle in his own confidence saying, you've got the right man. Now what we read, if we look, move along in chapter 6, verse 34, Gideon didn't flex his military muscles. We'll look on that in just a moment. It was not self-realization. He was not focusing on himself and saying, you know what, I can do this. We read there, then the Spirit of the Lord, in chapter 6, verse 34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Why did the Spirit of the Lord come upon Gideon? Because he was faithful and because he made himself available to be used by God in his covenant relationship with God. This faithfulness and availability doesn't come naturally. It comes as a gift from God's Holy Spirit. But we must be willing to say, I desire to be faithful. I want to be available. Help me in this. Speaking of help me in this, let's move forward to the story, the account of that fleece. Children, maybe you remember in your Sunday school lessons, and we adults surely probably will remember that probably one of the major accounts about Gideon is that story about the fleece. And we talk about laying out the fleece, don't we? I wonder if we sometimes misunderstand what that means. Sometimes we say, well, I'm going to lay out the fleece as, a, as if we are testing God to see whether he really is available or if he really will do this, if he really will help us out in this thing. It's not really what this fleece is all about. Gideon knew that he was being called. He was looking for a confirmation from God. It's in the same sense in which we, when, for instance, ministers are called to the gospel, they receive that inner calling, and they know that they are called, but they need the confirmation from God's people through the call and through the ordination and installation that takes place as God's people, the church of Jesus Christ, confirm externally the call that the ministers have received internally. Same for office bearers, same for teachers, same for those who are a part of the leadership in the church and different ministries of the church. You may desire to do that, but you need to have that confirmed by the church asking you to help out with the youth or the children or whatever ministry it may be that you are a part of in this congregation. That's what the fleece was all about. Gideon says, confirm this for me. 
First of all, he says, let the ground be dry and the fleece be wet so that I, I know that this is a confirmation. And God does that. And Gideon says, can I have a double confirmation here now on this? Let the ground be wet and the fleece be dry in the morning. And God does that. This is not that much different than in Mark chapter 9 when we have the man who brings his son to Jesus to be healed. You remember that story in Mark chapter 9? And he says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. He's talking about himself and his son. And Jesus replies, he says, if you can, Jesus says, if everything is possible for him who believes. And we read that immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's what's happening with the fleece. With the fleece. Gideon is saying, I'm, I, I have a shaken faith. I, I'm not strong in and of myself. I need that confirmation. I believe, but, but I have those moments of doubt. Don't you have your moments of doubt? I do. And so we have this, I believe, help my unbelief happening with Gideon as it naturally happens with each and every one of us in our lives. So God calls Gideon into the battle to lead the charge, as it were. But he doesn't call Gideon to that challenge without equipping him. We need to talk about this battle equipment. As a minister of the gospel, I have the responsibility of teaching. I'm a, I'm a professor. For Miami International Seminary, which is with the PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, but I'm on loan from the United Reformed Church of Toronto to the seminary. Uh, we have 13,000 students around the world, but my responsibility is only in Central America where I have 500 students. I do a lot of traveling in and out of Central America. But in addition to that, while I'm here at home, in addition to managing the coursework of 500 students in Central America, I've also been involved with Word and Spirit Institute. You may have seen some announcements in your bulletin about that, together with Reverend Matthew Van Lewick of the Brampton Canadian Reformed Church. And they've asked me to serve as a, as a theological education consultant to help them get a, a, a formal institution, a Bible institution, if you will, of training. And I've taught three courses already now with them, a, a course in the book of Nehemiah, a course in the canons, the history of the Bible, and now I currently I'm teaching a course on world religions, and that's where this ties in. God gave me the privilege of being able to serve as a missionary for a brief time, three or four years, amongst the Sikhs. That's why I live in Brampton. And as I was ministering to the Sikhs, I also rubbed shoulders with the Muslims. I remember one time, in terms of battle equipment, I had a coffee with a Muslim who knew I was a pastor and a Christian, a devout Christian. And at that coffee time, this Muslim said to me, he says, all due respect, uh, reverend, he says, I think that the Christian religion is one of the weakest religions, indeed, the weakest religions in the world today. I didn't take offense by it. God is the one who has taken the offense by that. I'm just God's emissary, his messenger. However, I did say to him, help me understand why you are saying that. He said, you know what? The Christian religion is based on one pillar. 
The Muslims have five pillars. The Sikhs have three pillars. The Christian faith has one pillar. So I asked him what the five pillars of the Muslim faith were. I, of course, knew what they were. I was just testing him. And he said, well, he said, number one, you have to proclaim on a daily basis uh, belief uh, uh, in Allah and Muhammad as his prophet. You have to repeat that as a part of your profession daily. And you also had to do prayers five times a day facing Mecca. That's the second pillar. Third pillar, you need to fast, especially during the month of Ramadan. Uh, the fourth pillar is that you need to do a pilgrimage to Mecca at least once in your lifetime. And the fifth pillar for the Muslim is that you need to give alms to the poor. Notice that all of these pillars are focused on what I need to do in order to attain salvation. Notice. So I asked him, I said, what about the Sikhs? Well, he said, their three pillars are work, worship, and service. Those are the three things that they need to do in order to attain their understanding of salvation. So I asked him if, how he was doing with his part of doing those five pillars of the Muslim faith. I said, have you made a pilgrimage to Mecca yet? He was a young man yet. No, he says, but I'm planning to do that. I'm saving up some money. I plan to do that in about five or six years. So I said, if you were to die today, you would not have completed that requirement for salvation. Mm, no. I said, when you are ill in bed and in the hospital and uh, you might have had an accident, you're in a coma, are you able to pray five times on that particular day when you're going through an illness? Do you really pray five times every day? Well, at least I miss it sometimes. Sometimes work gets busy and so on, but, but I do what I can. And so I pointed out to him on each one of those pillars how he was failing to live up to what those pillars are all about. And I mentioned the same thing about the Sikhs, how they fail to live up to those three criteria of solid work, perfect worship, and active service in the community. He was nonplussed. He was a little uptight about that. But then I said to him, but now he said, you mentioned to me that the Christian faith is based on one pillar. Can you identify that for me? He said, that one pillar is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Wow. It almost sounded like an evangelist to me as he said that he knew in his head what that one pillar was. And I said to him, I said, here is the big difference. The pillars that you as Muslims and those that the Sikhs have are something that we need to accomplish in order to get into heaven. But the pillar, the one pillar of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was unique only to the Christian religion, as I teach the world religions class, I, we talk about that, which is unique is that a fact is that the gift of salvation has been accomplished for us. Yes, we must respond in thanksgiving to God by showing our love and by serving Him. But that's not how we get our salvation. We can't possibly. And he began to understand that really the Christian religion is one of the, probably the most strong religions. Of course, I called him after that several times to continue to talk about that, and he disappeared. He didn't want to talk to me anymore. He knew he had lost that minor debate over lunch at Timmy's. But God does provide us with battle equipment. Ephesians chapter 6. God gives us the battle equipment as he gave to Gideon the battle equipment, what we need in order to be able to go into the world 
with the gospel. We're talking about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. We're talking about the shoes of the gospel. We're talking about the helmet of faith, of salvation, the sword of the spirit. These are the equipment that God gives to us. Now will you note in terms then in chapter 7 how God goes about delivering his people in that battle? God calls Gideon to battle, and he calls, says to Gideon, now get the people together for battle. Gideon gets them together, chapter 7. And we read that he starts out with 32,000. So God gathers those 32,000 together, the first verses of, of chapter 7, and says, God, here I am, 32,000. Are we ready to go? And God says, uh-uh, too many. 32,000? And if we read in chapter 8, verse 10, we know that there were at least 135,000 of the enemy. 15,000 that lived, 120,000 that died. So we know that we are dealing with at least, perhaps more, but let's not exaggerate these, at least 135,000. 32,000 was too many. God says to Gideon then in, verses, in verse 3, I want, you to, I want you to tell those who are afraid or uneasy just to simply go home. Two-thirds of the army go home. He's left with 10,000. So Gideon says, are we ready? And God says, too many. Then he has him go through another exercise, which is an interesting exercise as it is, going down to the river, and depending on how, I'm not going to get into all the details of, of, of the significance of that at this point, because we're running along in our time here. But he whittles the army down in that exercise to 300 people, and untrained at that, just civilians. And God says, now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. Gideon, this is not your battle. It's not in your strength. It's not in your power. It's my battle. And I will rout out the enemy. And when we look at that routing out of the enemy and how that all takes place, we see that in verses 19 and 20, and 21, from 19 to 22, we read about how each man held his position around the camp and all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled, simply because of the blowing of the trumpets and the breaking of the jars and the waving of the torches, together with a shout for the Lord and for Gideon, in verse 19 and 20. That's not a normal battle, is it? That's a strange battle. That's because this is not a normal battle that we are dealing with today in our lives either. God is calling us into a battleground. The battleground is not between Gideon and his army and the Midianites and the Amalekites. The battleground is not between David and Goliath. And the, the battleground is between God and Satan. That's the battle we are in when we look at this from the history of redemption. And as we engage in this battle, God equips us. And God says, it's not your battle, it's mine. Go in the strength that you have, he says to Gideon. What you have and the strength that you have is the reminder that we have from John that he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. He was within us, Jesus Christ, the King, is greater than he who is in the world, Satan. Always. Never fails. And that's a picture of what we have in that great battle that, was take, that took place on the cross of Calvary and the resurrection that took place three days later, demonstrating God's power over 
sin. It is God's battle. And when we engage in that battle in missions out there, when we engage in that battle in our day-to-day lives, remember, this is not your battle. And God is calling you with all of your weaknesses and limitations because, because this is not your battle. It's the Lord's battle. Let me conclude with some words of Scripture to encourage us in the battle that God has given to us. I read from Hebrews chapter 11 in our text, but just one chapter further in Hebrews chapter 12, and with that we'll conclude. Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus Christ, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Amen.